It's been 20 years since 9-11. Today's college freshmen, they weren't even alive then. And with our busy lives and the relentless 24-hour news cycle, we're in danger of letting 9-11 fade away from our cultural memory. We won't let this happen. Iron Light Labs presents the 20 for 20 podcast, 20 heroic stories about 9-11 for the 20th anniversary. I'm Nils Jorgensen. I was a New York City firefighter for almost 22 years until I contracted the rarest form of leukemia from cleaning up Ground Zero and was forced to retire from the job I loved. I'm lucky to be alive. Many of my best friends aren't. But this isn't about me. It's about the heroes of 9-11 and its aftermath who forged good out of evil. Love amidst the taking of 2,977 innocent lives and about an equal number who've died since then from 9-11 related illnesses. Today's story, episode 16 of 20. So I went to this symposium. I don't know why I was there. To this day, I don't know why I was there. It was probably 2004. And they were all therapists and psychiatrists. Not my crowd, but okay. And I say that loving therapy and it just is not, it's not my world. So I went to this thing. There were a lot of people there and one woman therapist stood up and she said, it's too late. The window is closed. Firefighters don't talk. And we missed the boat. And I, I had to raise my hand. And I'm thinking, who am I to raise my hand? All these people in here have their doctorates and... I said, I don't know what firefighters you're with, but you must not be listening because they don't shut up. You just just stop talking when you go in there and just listen. Guys would talk all the time. We're listening to Nancy Carbone, who I call one of the angel ladies, the amazing women who were constantly there for us after 9-11. And Nancy's still there more than 20 years later. Many of us firefighters were changed forever and continue to suffer after our family members and best friends died in the attacks. The survivor's guilt is agonizing, and the horrific things we saw that day, and in the aftermath, no one should see. And Nancy did something about it. She created Friends of Firefighters to offer us free and confidential counseling and wellness services. And last year alone, they provided over 2,000 counseling sessions for these heroic men and women. More of Nancy Carbone's story, but first, a message about our generous sponsor. Let's return to Nancy Carbone on Friends of Firefighters. I'll start by saying that nobody does a good deed without having help to do it. And for an organization to last 20 years, there are a lot of people that are really good people that were involved and, and got this rolling. So I can't take the credit. Um, I'm probably the most constant person here for the beginning. And my mentor was Tony Catapano and Tony Cat passed away on May 30th of 2020. And then Billy Hodgins was here and he passed away in November. Both were firemen who died from 9-11 related illnesses. So we've lost a lot of, a lot of our loved ones. But I started out uh, on 9-11. I, was, I felt the, the buildings get hit. I lived in Carroll Gardens and our windows shook in the building, and I thought actually something fell from an airplane. So I told my husband, can you go up on the roof and see if something fell on the building? And he didn't look across the water, and we didn't know what was going on until my sister-in-law called me from Florida and told me that two buildings had been hit, which of course we know, you know, one is an accident, two is an attack. My daughter is hearing impaired, and she was in high school. 
and I ran to get her. She was about 23 blocks away, and I ran to get her. And as I was running, there was black snow falling on us, which I didn't really know what was happening at the time. I thought it was a fire. I didn't know a building had collapsed. But she did, and she felt it, and probably more so than others because her other senses are quite heightened. And she saw the building fall from her school, which was directly across the water. Um, my concern was only her. Uh, my son was in college up, up in Vermont, and my concern was her. Uh, she was quite upset, obviously. But after a day or so, we didn't want to sit still. Um, we wanted to help. So five of my friends who were firefighters uh, were there. And I didn't know for quite some time, but I, they did all survive. So I called the wife of one of them, who was a lieutenant in the Bronx at the time, an 82 engine, Kevin Dermody. I grew up with Kevin. He kind of grew up in my home, and I consider him a brother. His wife said, go to a local firehouse and ask them what they need. And that really started it. It started out just like that. I went to a firehouse, and I asked what they needed. And the, the one I went to, actually, I, I went to a couple, but the first one I went to was Engine 204. And they entered the door and said, we didn't lose anybody. Find another house. Now, the, the reason that's interesting, and you'll know why, Everybody lost somebody. He was saying the house didn't lose somebody, but I found out later he lost his brother, the guy that told me that. We oh, didn't lose God. anybody. So he didn't feel that the firehouse deserved. So he said, I think they lost guys at 118. Why don't you go over there? So I had no idea where 118 was, um, but I did find it. And I went there and I met a firefighter, John Sorrentino. And when I asked him what they needed, this blew my mind and it might blow yours. He said he needed buglers for the funerals. Now, this is the second day. So he's already there. He's like, there's no way our guys survived. We need buglers for the funerals. We need bunting for the firehouse. And we need counselors. The counselor part blew my mind. Um, mainly because I know that firefighters take care of their own, and they very rarely ask for help outside. And counseling to them was reserved for when they couldn't stop drinking or self-medicating. It wasn't generally something like, I'm having a problem with X, Y, or Z. And they never talked about PTSD. So this was a revelation. And it was also a, a huge responsibility that I did not take lightly. It was easy enough to find the bunting. And it was easy enough to get the different things that they needed down at the site. And the bugler, I found him at a funeral, and I kind of kind of attacked him behind a tree and got his name and wrote it on my arm and so that was done but the counseling was a tough one and I met people that said they were counselors that I wouldn't want to sit with so I felt an enormous responsibility of whoever I bring into the house is my responsibility and if they mess it up um, you know it's on me so I took it really seriously more I think than John Sorrentino did when he said it to me because he didn't know me and he just said I'll throw it out there and if you can do it stranger then do it by Christmas time, I got closer to that firehouse, but a couple in the Bronx and a couple in Brooklyn in Hazmat, one who lost 19 members along with Squad 288. And at Christmas time, they asked me if I would open up a counseling center, and I said, I'm just a mom. I'm not a counselor. And they said, well, you've come through on the other things. Now you have a task. Get to work. So from Christmas until March, I searched for a place, and then I found a woman, Elizabeth O'Connell. She and her husband own quite a lot of real estate, and they gave us a little storefront on Columbia Street. And now you know where the site was in March. The Ground Zero site. We've been cleaning it up for six months at this point, and wouldn't be done until May. 
they were coming from the site to build out this place that used to be just a, it's a very dusty, they had uh, plastic flowers in this place. So we had to clean it out. And the guys came from the site to build it. So I thought, okay, that validates the need. If they're coming from there to do this, and they, I don't think they're doing a favor for me, I think they're doing this for the brothers. So that's, and the sisters. So I, I, I saw that as a sign that it has to happen. So because I wasn't meeting counselors that I felt would work with, certainly I didn't want to sit with the couple that I met, and the one that was fabulous was not available. She was so busy. And I didn't know how they would get paid. And I, I really did. I, there was a whole lot going on in my mind. And I met this woman who was um, um, a supervisor at Safe Horizon. And we agreed that they would, they got a lot of money to provide counseling to first responders, but they weren't able to get any first responders to come. So they sent counselors to our place and we used them for a few months. And then I had to learn about nonprofits and I had to learn about uh, hiring people and, and paying people. And so for the first couple of years, no one got paid. It was just, we just showed up. And, and the hours, easily 80 hours a week. I didn't go home till 2 a.m. I was at the firehouse at 6. It was just, it was nutty during that whole period. But there was a lot that needed to be done. Safe Horizon worked out for a while, but then I had to start thinking beyond their grant, and I was approached by the Robin Hood Foundation. It was recommended to them that they support what is now called Friends of Firefighters by a widow, a 9-11 widow, Dave Fontana's widow, Marion, recommended that they give us a grant, which they did. And with that grant, they also sent me to school to learn what I was about to get into. Had I known what I was going to get into... I would have shied away, I think, a little bit, except that I've had so many people come back in here and say what we've done together for the job has been so helpful that it was worth it. It, it was definitely worth it. And we've grown. So since then, uh, you know, we moved from my car, which is where we were just delivering things to the houses, and to this place on Columbia Street, which was a poor neighborhood. And at the time, there was like ample parking. You can't park there now. But it was a good first spot. Um, after a while, it got too small. And after a few years, I got the feeling that if we didn't move into an old firehouse, we would close. And the reason was that there are a lot of counseling centers throughout the world and they're usually a room with a couch and a chair, and it's, it's set up the same way everywhere. But I knew that if I could get guys into a firehouse, they would walk through the doors and feel at home, and it had to be a firehouse. And I can't take credit for any of this because I really believe that this all, like this, this, this did not come from me. I mean, I have these ideas, but I think they're fed to me in some way because I don't know why it worked out. It shouldn't have. I certainly didn't have any experience. But... I was in one of the places that we had on Columbia Street, and I was with one of the companies that came for breakfast, and they said, we really need to get a firehouse. I said, I know I'm working on it. I don't know where to go. We had just lost out on engine 204. We put in an RFP to get that house that was closed, and we lost because they said we couldn't prove that we were sustainable. This is in 2005, I think, maybe six. So they gave it to the Brooklyn Philharmonic, which declared bankruptcy about 10 months after that and it's still empty today so thank god we didn't get that building because it's smack in the middle of a hipster area with no parking and 
all the eyes are on the house. You know, we needed something off the beaten path. So as we're talking, at the time we had massage therapy, and the massage therapist comes out of her room, and she goes, are you looking for a firehouse? And I said, yeah. She goes, I know a guy who's about to skip out on his rent, and the firehouse is on Van Brunt Street. And I said, this is great. We're going to move in as soon as he gets out. And it turned out that the guy who owns this building was the same guy who owned the other two that we were in. So we moved over here. I will show you photographs of what this used to look like, but it did not look like this. Over 400 firefighters throughout the city, active and retired. Actually, I would say we had some French, uh, German, British. We had a lot of firefighters come here to build it back into a firehouse. So now there's ownership. So now I love when guys walk through the door, they go right to the fridge. This is their firehouse. They'll come in and they'll put on TV. We don't agree on what they put on, but this floor is their floor. We built this so that the firefighters in the kitchen can close those doors and they don't know who's coming in. They can go straight upstairs for services, whether it's counseling, financial guidance, acupuncture, yoga, different kinds of counseling, right? So individual group, I'm trying to think. We actually have painting now, Um, different things. It's not always about counseling. It's not always about sitting down with someone who is going to walk you through your whole life. And I think that's part of the fear when firefighters come in. It's like, you know, they, they don't, they feel vulnerable, I think. And I think when they come here, they feel a little bit safer in a firehouse. And some don't go upstairs. Some stay right here and they talk to another firefighter because for them, their issue is all about the fire floor, something that occurred. And they want to talk to somebody else who was you know, equally experienced or more experienced because they truly understand. But what's really wonderful is when, um, and this happens so frequently that I can't even give you one isolated event. When somebody comes in here and they are, in their words, broken, and you see it, they have that faraway look where they have the shakes, they will not make eye contact, they're uh, broken. That's what they say. Yes. I'm, I'm broken. I can't, I can't function anymore. And they start to work with the therapist and they come frequently. And then after about three or four months, they start to look up, they start to lock eyes, they start to smile a little bit. Then they say things like, do you guys need help around here? Almost always. People that come for help here, do you need help? We had one guy that came in and he was that way. He had actually, I found out later, checked himself into a hospital because he was afraid of what he might do. And when he came out, one of his buddies put him in a car and brought him here. And he came in, wouldn't make eye contact, very shaky. He couldn't even get the glass of water to his lips. And over time, he started to become basically, you know, uh, how should I put this? He became such a part of the family. Now, when he came in, Tony (laughs) Tony Cat gave him such a hard time. He goes, what do you do? You want to help? What do you do? Do you paint? No, I don't know how to paint. Electrical? No, I'm not an electrician. Plumbing? No, I'm not a plumber. Can you cook? Nah, I'm not a really good cook. You know, everybody tells me I suck. What can you do? He goes, well, he goes, never mind. I'll tell you what you do. Get the fucking broom. (laughs) You're you're going to be the guy that mops and and sweeps. After a while, the guy became such an an integral part that we would stop whatever we were doing and say, let's wait for him because he's not here yet. And we, we have to have him in the house. He started to come in, throw the door open and, and announce like in a loud voice that he was here. He was absolutely becoming, he was becoming for the first time in his life. He was uh, comfortable in his own skin. He was starting to explore uh, touring, like uh, traveling. And 
So he decided he was going to paint the doors. Now he said he wasn't a painter and he's not a painter, but it was just slapping red paint on various doors. But he would sign the bottom in black magic marker. So if you go upstairs, and I hope you do, you'll see all of our doors are signed. And, you know, he passed away in November. Um, and Tony passed away just before him. So we like to think that they and Kenny Pogan are still at the watch because they were very important to growing this place. So I appreciate the kind words you have for me, but it would be so false for me to say, oh, thank you, I'll take them and keep them for myself because it, this, is, this is a team effort here, and it has been all along. And I've just been very fortunate to be a part of it. That's how I really, truly feel. More with Nancy Carbone after these messages from our sponsors. And now, let's return to Nancy. I think the most important thing for us is making it known that you're not alone when firefighters or first responders in general retire they tend to isolate, so they're going from a family, they have two families, but when they go back to their firehouses sometimes, they don't know anybody there anymore, and they've lost a tremendous, so before they even left, they lost so many people on 9-11, and before and after. They've had experiences where they didn't personally lose a, a brother or sister, but they went to like a happy land fire, and they, and you know, we we hear from guys all the time that were at that that are still upset about that and how they handled it, or I should say didn't handle the psychological needs after a fire such as that. 87 people were trapped and died at that fire. So for me, making sure that firefighters and their families know that there's a place for them to go so that they're not alone, because what we're fighting against is that sense of... Um, despair that causes them to take their own lives. So if we can address suicide, if we can address the illnesses that are killing the firefighters, if we can address the feelings that they have that are associated with PTSD by bringing them together and maybe, you know, a crowded room is probably not the place for a lot of guys, but the one-on-one -on -one is everything. The one-on-one, -on -one, just like a one phone number that you can call at two in the morning when you try not to go to the bar to drown it and you just, you have to face whatever it is. Nobody should be alone going through that. So I feel like we need to expand rather than to start to dial down. In the beginning when I started this, I thought it would be one year, maybe two. Um, and then the brick fire in the Bronx at the mattress factory. I thought, this is not going to end. Wait a minute. My own great uncle was killed line of duty at a 14 truck. That lasted generations. I mean, I was raised understanding the jobs that you have as a result of that. Although it didn't really gel right away, you know. But, but my understanding was that firefighters are a cut above other people. First responders are a cut above other people. They very rarely ask for help. So I'm happy to say 20 years later, we're getting the toughest of the tough coming in saying, I, I, I'm ready, I'm ready. Well, the stigma that's attached to it, I think, prevents guys from, from reaching out, right? Because it, in their minds, it's a sign of weakness. Um, I know I reached out early on. I lost my, my childhood best friend, John Shard, and you know many, many other guys. And at first, even the department, I think, almost stigmatized us. They literally put a C on your medical folder, which meant you were in counseling. And uh, years later, when I came down with cancer, initially they were thinking it was psychosomatic and that my spleen was massive and that, oh, this is probably alcoholism. And 
lo and behold, I was dying of leukemia. And there was the stigma of the fact that I went to counseling all those years earlier. Mm -hmm. And I think guys were fearful of that when they heard that we were being stigmatized and stereotyped. They they just said, ah, screw it, I'll, I'll take care of this myself. Right. But at the same time, you know, to be able to deposit it somewhere. I think that's another part of the counseling thing, to yeah. deposit that, that negative bullshit that you have to carry around because you have to express it. Some people don't want to express it at home because they don't want it in the walls. They don't want it to come back at an unopportune time where they right, have to listen right. to it again. Uh, some people want to take care of it on their own. And some people don't know how to express it at all. And it comes out sideways. And we, you touched on substance abuse and you know, the alcoholism that really was in the job for many, 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 actually centuries. Um, it's a hard job. I used to watch the firefighters on TV, knowing in my head, you know, that mom's uncle was killed and stuff. And I'm looking at these guys and they got a blazing fire up on Charlotte Street. The building's gone. They come out, they're laughing and they light up a cigarette. And I think these guys have to be brain damaged. What, what right. are they doing? But it's a, it's a coping mechanism. Yeah. That's that's what it is. It's. I also remember when they used to take the cameras and open them up and throw the film on the street. If 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 anybody was there filming a fire and they got you know one of the victims or something, yeah. they'd throw yeah, out the that film. Was a big thing. But I remember thinking, even as a young person, it's like these guys have to be insane. You know, that was the first thing is to go into the fire. But they come out and they light up, and then everybody knew that they would go out and have a drink or something. Um, and in the old old days, they would have whiskey on the table after a good job for the chief. But that obviously had to change. Everything changed sure. uh, for, for the right reasons. Um, but it's a, t it's a tough job. So if that's a coping mechanism, then how do they cope now? And what can you replace that with? And what is positive? How about, you know, there's an outlet. So it doesn't have to pile up and pour over and go into, you know, the, the, a marriage and turn the marriage into yeah. a, 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 just a war zone. See, I was blessed. My wife's father was a firefighter, a fireman, oh. and uh, she grew up with it. So she gave me a lot more leeway mm -hmm. than a lot of wives maybe knew how to. Right. And so I was very lucky in that respect. Yeah. But, but it's, you know, there's so many guys who didn't have that luxury, right? And, and, oh, yeah. yeah. And, and honestly, what, what we did to the wives wasn't fair. I mean, we were gone from their lives for at least the first nine, ten months, and then for months afterwards with memorials and funerals, yeah. and, and they had to be very, very patient people to put up with that. Yeah, and then, and then even a step further, that you were there for your buddy's widow and her kids, and that was, yeah. that was a very difficult thing. I mean, hindsight's always twenty twenty, yeah. and you can say, well, you know, they should have put you know, the, the single guys yeah. on that. You know, well, but, the guys who are the liaisons, right, yes. who, are, who are put in their family, they're... they're family they were assigned to before their own family for a long time right. and it caused right. a lot of problems there's one guy that handled it in a way that i thought was brilliant um he brought his wife into it and they were both liaisons to this widow and her kids and did a beautiful job they're friends now she, the, the the widow did remarry eventually yeah. but his wife was absolutely privy to everything yes. that happened because she was there um did you notice an uptick this past year? Um, because my phone calls from dear friends that, you know, we have trust and love. I was shocked at some of the guys that were bulletproof for 19 years. And all of a sudden, yeah. a month into the 20th anniversary, 
I was like, wow, they've been crushed with this for 19 years and held on to it and never said anything. Mm -hmm. um, it's not going away. It's actually, I think, getting a little worse now, right? Do you, do you get that sense? I was so stunned at how many guys, same thing, the, the, the ones that just seemingly, and, and I, I no longer trust the guy who's totally steady. Or, you know, I no longer trust that facade because I've seen now what happens. But I was stunned by not how many, although that was a little bit surprising. I knew there would be an uptick. It's the 20th anniversary. From year one, all I heard about was, I don't want to be around for the 20th anniversary. I'm yeah. going to be somewhere yeah. else. Um, it's who was asking for help that really surprised me. As you say, the, you yeah. know, the toughest of the tough came forward. And what a relief, because just recently we did bury another suicide. Um, yeah. And it breaks my heart to think that if there was just a connection in, if he only knew that there are people on the other end of the phone that can help, that can change. It's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And it's the thing that does keep me awake at night. So um, you should have told them that the C on your folder st stood for cancer. And basically yeah. just say, fuck you. Well, courage, yeah. courage to say. It should have been courage. I out for help, right? Yeah. And that's, yeah. yeah. And, and it is, is, is the upsetment of the guys. They felt so betrayed. Whereas they can come here, there's no judgment. There's no stigma. There's no C on their folder. You know, this is the first time I've walked into this building and, and I felt like I was at home. You know, it's an old 120 some odd year firehouse uh, like my old command ladder 114 beautiful yeah. spiral staircase brick wall everybody wants your staircase yeah <laughs> oh gosh yeah no, i know i think it's going to get stolen yeah. one day you yeah know, the, but, the commissioner yeah. said oh no one's getting yeah, that staircase yeah that's an iconic <laughs> staircase and you know but when you walk in here except for the truck it's like wow you're home yeah, yeah. um you just said so much that I want to just kind of parcel it out because I don't want to go over and past what you yes. just shared. Yes. Um, you're not alone in, in what you've been through, but you, it is uniquely your experience. I am so sorry that that happened to you. Um, how many years did you have on the job when 9-11 happened? I, I was on a job 11 years on the fire department, right. and I had been a police officer for two years prior okay. to that. So 13 years of so service. So long enough to know that, that there, the department, um, there's a job to do, right? You're yes. there to put out the fires. When you're no longer putting out the fires, you kind of become a nuisance in a way, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and you bog down, you know, whatever it is that they have going. Yeah. I think, though, that the fire department was faced with a, a Herculean task after 9-11 to go from, I believe they had 11 counselors, and they had to hire over 100 yeah, quickly. Yeah. And that's really tough because you now have the responsibility of putting these people in firehouses. Yes. And unfortunately, I witnessed with my own eyes some of them that had, should never have gone to a yeah. firehouse. Yeah. Um, and most of those left crying. The, the firehouse. Well, the guys. Gonna, well, the guys would throw them out. Because, they would throw right. them out. Um, yeah. But no, I didn't. It wasn't. It, they could not understand that you're not dealing with just a population. This is a tribe. Yes. So if you it's a subculture of our own. Right. And if you yeah. if you do not take the time to sit back, shut up and listen and learn, yes. they will not open up. So I went to this symposium. I don't know why I was there. I, to this day, I don't know why I was there. It was probably 2004. And they were all therapists and psychiatrists. Not my crowd, but okay. And I say that 
loving, you know, the, the therapy and it just is not, it's not my world. So I went to this thing. There were a lot of people there and one woman therapist stood up and she said, it's too late. The window is closed. Firefighters don't talk. And we missed the boat. And I, I had to raise my hand and I'm thinking, who am I to raise my hand? All these people in here have their doctorates. And I said, I don't know what firefighters you're with, but you must not be listening because they don't shut up. You just just stop talking when you go in there and just listen. Guys would talk all the time. Yeah. But when would they talk? They would talk generally alone. On my way out of the firehouse, they'd stop me at the rig on the apparatus floor and say, you got a minute? Don't ever sit on the, on the bumper of a fire truck. It really doesn't feel good. It's very uncomfortable <laughs> after about five minutes. But I was in over my head because I'm not qualified to do that kind of work. So I... I I consider myself to be a conduit. That's it. I connect the firefighters to the counselors, to the financial guidance, to whatever it is that they need. But that's all I do. So when I hear you say angel and all of that, that's very nice. And my mother would be delighted to hear that. Yes. (laughs) But that's not what I am. I'm a person who appreciates the work that you do, that your brothers and sisters do. I know that if anything I do that causes any danger, you'll come right away and get me out of whatever stupid thing I got myself into at any time, day or night. And that means something. So that if somebody who is doing that for me and everybody around me that I care about, and even those I don't care or know about, we have to be there for them when they need help on their terms. So we don't decide what the counseling looks like. It was decided by firefighters. It had to be in a firehouse. There has to be parking, ample parking. They're not going to take a subway here. Well, that's okay, because you can't really get the subway here. You have to walk or something. Um, It has to be free. It can't be 12 sessions and then, sorry, you're goodbye, you know, gone. It could be three years with us. It's always free. We do not charge. I think one of the things that's most important is that there are firefighters who found f- friends here, family here. They have a sense that this is a sanctuary, and these are the words that they use, so I'm not like making these yeah. up. They, these are words that I hear most often is that this is a sanctuary for firefighters and their families. You have to include the families. If you don't include the families, you're putting a Band-Aid on things because if you can bring the family in, you can actually have them all move together, move forward together. This wasn't one incident for many firefighters that come in. It brings up other incidents through their career, whether it happened after 9-11 or before. It's an extremely dangerous job. There are a lot of very scary things that happen. When you're at the academy, don't they tell you that, you know, look to the left and look to the right? You know, not all of you are going to make it to retirement. And unfortunately, that's true. Within a year, I lost my best friend from probate school, Kevin Kane. And then three years after that, our other buddy was Jimmy Young, who we were just talking about. And and they both burned to death. And that was within the first four years of our careers. And it was was haunting. Yeah. It's haunting. And it's also very, very sobering. Um, It's like, holy shit, I'm in that club. Oh, yeah. You think you're bulletproof when you're 21 or you're 22, right? And you're in shape. and And then all of a sudden, you start going through your career. Yeah. Especially in the 90s, we were losing a lot of guys yeah. quickly. And, yeah. and you know, what I consider, I call it significant emotional events in any responder or military's career. And the human being, the soul, the mind is only able to absorb a certain amount of them until you get saturated. And then what happens is with the saturation is where did the rest of the events go? 
So now you're having a hard time positively managing them and spinning them into something positive and productive. So now the negativity and the destruction starts, the drinking, the, the marital problems, the guys who unfortunately go beyond alcohol to substance abuse. And now with, at the time of random drug testing, there was guys who were truly in a bad way and they lost their jobs. And yeah. that was horrible because their, their significant emotional events caused them to go down a road that they probably would not have gone down mm-hmm. and now they're unemployed. Right. And, and they lost horrible. everything. Lost everything. 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 Insurance, everything. everything. Yes. Unfortunately, um, that is true. <clears throat> right after 9-11, they sent out this thing, and it looked like a, um, it was like a card in a way, but it was shaped like a pamphlet. It was, once, uh, it was written on both sides, <clears throat> but it didn't fold out. It was just a, a long pamphlet-shaped uh, thing. And in it, it was addressed, I think, to the officers... And it goes back almost 20 years, so forgive me if I don't have exactly what it was. But there were bullet points on it, and these were the signs for PTSD. And they talked about anger, irritability, sleeplessness, sleepiness, you know, um, just aggression. They named a bunch of different things. And then about a year after that, they reissued it, but they said, officers, look for these different symptoms in your members because these are signs of alcohol and substance abuse. Same exact, yeah. It was the 202 uh, AUC 202, yes, yes. All units circular I remembered reading it saying, holy shit, this is like a setup in a way. Now, I don't think that was how it was done, and I don't think there was an evil, you know, uh, intent there, but it was uncanny to me that it switched from, let's have some empathy, let's set this up, this is PTSD, these are the signs of it, Let's go forward together. This counseling services unit has said it took a long time for them to refer anybody to us. I mean, they do now freely, but at the time, they oh, were sure. not coming Well, because you guys were the competition at that point. Which is ridiculous. And, right. We but, were catching but, guys that would yes. never go there. So. What they were looking at. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think it wasn't so much competition for the members as it was competition for grants. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. and they, I guess they thought I was much bigger and scarier than I actually am because <laughs> uh, they were getting millions of dollars and we were, we, uh, we, yeah. we were not. Um, and I certainly don't complain about what we got because what we got was from the goodness sure. of the hearts of people. But we stayed away from government grants for a long time. Um, we stayed away from anything that might require that we give information. And one of the most, oh, I have to find the right word, contentious, I think is the word. I was invited to come to a meeting. I thought I was going to a meeting with just the UFA members. The Union for New York City Firefighters. But they actually had a doctor there, who I will not name, who said to me that he wanted me to give him the social security numbers of everybody that came here. And I just smiled and said, we don't take social security numbers. We don't take last names. At the time, we didn't. We yeah. did chicken scratches, one, two, three, four, and line through. That's how I counted for the Amer- yeah. American Red Cross grant. I would just chicken scratch because I was not going to divulge any, anybody's identity. But he said, I will destroy you. These are his exact words. I will destroy you if you do not give me the social security numbers. And I smiled. And I didn't smile because I'm so tough. I was scared shitless inside because it's like, we have guys coming for help. And what do I tell them if they shut me down? But my answer was, go ahead. My husband's a painter. He teaches at Pratt. I'm independent. I don't work for you. I know all it took was one rumor. And he could shut us down. You know that. And Nancy, I remember firsthand when you were first on your mission of helping us, you were actually 
flocked out of the firehouses by the administration. Mm -hmm. I remember filling in in South Street Seaport where they lost 14 guys. And I was also on a, a, a long-term coverage on Mid-On Street with 205 and 118. Mm -hmm. And I remember meeting you then, and I know you, you know you met hundreds of guys, but I remember there was literally a department order that was made because of you mm -hmm. <laughs> banning anyone who was coming to bring things we needed. You know, you brought us refrigerators and, and mattresses for the bunk room and, and you yeah. know, anything you could imagine, Bose radios, tables, microwaves. And they literally put out a hit on you to mm -hmm. prevent you from being let in. And I remember one day I was the lieutenant. I was a brand new lieutenant on duty. And, and uh, the guy comes up in a panic. He goes, you know, that lady, that lady. Here. I said, man, yeah. I said, let her in. I said, whatever, whatever she wants to do. And, and, you know, of course, I was brand new. I could have gotten demoted, but I, I couldn't believe it. I said, here's this angel lady coming to, like, rescue us, and they're banning her? Like, oh, I can imagine the backstory on that one, right? Like, just, I didn't, that must have hurt you in the heart, right? I mean. Oh, no, I ignored it. Because it came, I, I ignored everything that came out of headquarters. Yeah. Everything. I listened to the firefighters that were working the fires. Yeah. I worked, I listened to the retirees. I mostly listened to Tony Catapano and he never, never steered me wrong. Uh, and he basically ran this whole downstairs here. Um, I know this is going to sound like a joke, but I try so hard to stay out of the politics Yeah, because they're very ugly and it takes you away from what you're really here to do. Right. Yes. So I do try hard. However, politics are necessary at times in order to get what you need to be even more helpful to the people yes. you want to help. So um, for a number of years, almost every, in fact, every commissioner wanted me gone. Oh, I know wanted that. Wanted me gone. I know that. They weren't even allowing uh, people from headquarters to talk to me. And, and actually, I might surprise you by saying they had a point in a way, because here I am, who am I, where am I coming from, and now I'm going to offer counseling, which means for the first time, they're going to have to let go of some of the guys they can't track them. They don't know, you know, if we're seeing chauffeurs with substance abuse problems, sure. things like that. Um, so I would want to have vetted me, but they didn't vet me. They just kept me out because I didn't come in through the proper channels, nor would I. I'm just, that's not me. I, I you know, I have Kevin Dermody, the lieutenant I told you about, said just whatever you do, never work downtown. Never go to work for the job. Do what you do, but don't work down there. And, and so far, I've, I have no intention of going down there. It's been, um, I would say the very first person from headquarters, and I adore this guy. I think he is a class act. The very first person in headquarters that actually brought me in is Ed Kilduff. Who yes. said you're helping the brothers and He's sisters? My old boss. Wonderful yep. man. Yes, he is. Yes. Wonderful man, and um, he just makes me smile because he he's he's such a solid person, and he even as chief of department, he I don't think I don't think he for a second considers himself anything but a fireman, and and he really just looks straight at is she helping? So in my mind, when I started this, is it is what we are going to offer going to hurt anybody? That's the first thing. Could it hurt anybody? It's like, no. Does it help? If that's yes, then the next step is, is it, is it honest? Is it honest? Because firefighters can call bullshit a mile away, and if you screw up once, you're done, right? So I want to make sure that the people we bring in 
have the same intent. And, um, and by and large, we've done really well. You know, I've made a mistake here or there with my judgment, but it's a learning curve, right? So as soon as I saw that the, those people were gone, and there aren't too many of them, but you guys keep us honest because I get called out on anything, you know, like my coffee, it sucks. My coffee sucks. <laughs> How do I know? Well, I don't drink coffee, so I really don't know that. But Tony Katz said, did, did you make the coffee? And I said, well, yeah. And he goes, well, throw it out. <laughs> throw it out because I know it's terrible. And then he had a little cup over there with a line on it, and he showed me how to make it. But you, I learned this one thing. You have to give a shit. You have to care about making the coffee to make it taste good. So now I just ask anybody in the house, because apparently even a five-year-old can make good coffee, but not me. <laughs> the idea is they'll call me on it, and that's a, like a simple thing. And we've had other things, too, where guys would come in and they'd say, that's upside down. You, got, you can't do it that way. This is the way you have to do it. Generally, we didn't have to get to that unless it was Tony Cat who would tell me straight up, you know, and he was the one that would say, this is the reason we can't do it this way. This is the reason we have to do it this way. And occasionally he would know when to turn around and pretend he didn't see something. And also I would have to turn around if I was upstairs and I heard a big crash down here. He would tell me to just stay upstairs in my office and, and you know, the, the men will take care of it. So a lot of that, the, the um, firehouse uh, feeling is still here. Like the guys that come in now, which you probably know several of the peers that are here, they take care of the house and it has to be the way they want it to be. And to me, the reason guys are comfortable here is because they built it. And I'm not talking about, you know, just the guys that swung hammers. People that come in here, you can tell that firefighters did this. You, you can tell, I can't, I, I will not say on air what we did to this place because I'll turn it off and tell you, but the fire for this, this has the feel of a house. And the only way you can do that, you cannot replicate that because, you know, you get somebody from, from uh, you know, some TV show coming in and telling you how to do it. Every single thing has been figured out here by the guys. And even the things that are kind of fakakta, as one of the guys said, <laughs> It was done by them, leave it alone. It was done by them. We're not, we're not fixing what the guys came in to do. They did it from their hearts. I can look at things where I just go, oh my God, that's not, I mean, right there, that's not finished, but it doesn't matter. The guys did it and they did it themselves. So it stays that way. Um, they designed a lot of our programming by talking about what their needs were. So when they say, you know, well, I was at, I was at CSU. The counseling service unit of the FDNY. And they told me on the 10th, they probably were told from the beginning, but they only heard it at the 10th session that they only have two more sessions to go and they bug out. We don't have, you know, we said we can't, we can't have an ending to it. The ending will come naturally and hopefully the person will say, okay, I've completed, or the counselor will say, we've gotten to where you want to be. Do you want to continue? So those things, making sure it's free, making sure there's no records. These are things that came from the firefighters. So because it comes from, and, and specifically FDNY firefighters, there's a difference. There's a really big difference between FDNY and every other fire department in the world. So on that note, we're doing a pilot program in Biloxi, Mississippi, to see if we can do a Zoom counseling with them because they've oh, asked wow. for that. That's so, really great. Yeah, and so the hope is that we'd be able to grow that way slowly because I don't want to rock this boat and we're on steady ground. But um, well, that's a, that's a backwards analogy, a boat on steady ground. Um, <laughs> But it, it, to me, um, the need will always be there because this will never be a safe job. It never will be. As long as there's fire and there will always be fire, there will be death. And 
what happens to those who responded, who suffer the loss, whether it's of a civilian or a brother, sister, what happens to them psychologically as go forward? You see things humans shouldn't see. I mean, they just shouldn't happen, right? But simple car wrecks that we don't even think we might see it on the news or see it in the paper, but they're on the scene and they're seeing how horrific it is. They're seeing children in situations that break our hearts. What do you do with all of that you have seen? You cannot pour it all inside and keep it there. I think when we think back to your father's time, to grandfather's time, you know, they, they were tough guys and you couldn't get them to laugh or anything like that. It changed their lives. But they thought that sharing it and saying that it was that upsetting would somehow make them look like less of a man. Um, I do, my heart goes out to the female firefighters who really are caught between being who they are, which are damn good firefighters, and proving themselves. It's harder for them to ask for help than it is a male because they have to be the male times two to prove that they belong in the firehouse. And that's not an easy thing to do. So, you know, uh, it's unfortunate. I mean, we're, we're reaching out, but uh, real reticence with the female firefighters to, to get the help, lest it brand them, you know, that they're weaker they're, they're and they're already, not. They're already worried about showing any signs of weakness. And now again, for all of us, that stigma then mm-hmm. adds to that. So I could understand that. Yeah, yeah. You know, you mentioned something that just struck a nerve with me. When I was in the height of, you know, going to speak to somebody, I started building a relationship with the counselor, and he was a good guy. And he said, probably it was nine, ten sessions in, he says, I'm sorry, um, we're not going to be able to complete. I'm leaving. I'm going to fin- finish my Ph.D., and uh, it's been great. And I felt so let down, and I'm saying, here's this guy. I, I, you know, I trusted him, and yeah. he was helping me, and, and he's just leaving. Yeah. And I'm sure the guy's here knowing that you're not leaving. And yeah. you're, that, that's huge. I mean, that's, Well, that used to be know. the biggest pain in the ass is that she's not going anywhere. She's not leaving. When is she going to leave? <laughs> yeah. um, what you talk about with that is, is, is important because we had a counselor who left. Everybody loved her, but she gave a six-month notice to everybody. And they still were upset. Yeah. But we took a note from somebody who came back and said that he was given like two two visits before they were ending, which is tough. And I, and I think that they do say in the beginning, and I feel for those counselors because they don't want to turn them out, but the budget defines the amount of time that they can see somebody, and that sucks. I mean, yeah. it just sucks. We don't do that here, you know, and, and people might question the way I do things. I don't care. It seems to work. Nancy's Way also attracted two very special supporters, Gary Sinise and Steve Buscemi. I met Gary first. I met Gary in 2009 through Danny Prince, who is a prince. Danny's been on my board since 2002, since Legend, we started. But he never gets the name right of Friends of Firefighters. He always says, Friend of the Fireman. And I'm thinking, this is a lot of fucking money, man, for our annual budget to be for one fireman. You know, And isn't the word fireman not politically correct right, anymore? Right. But Danny, you can't criticize Danny. He's, he's a hoot. Um, he introduced me to Gary Sinise in, I think, 2009 at a function. And um, Gary being Gary didn't just say, oh, you know, call me sometime and we'll set up a... He called me right away and said, I want to be supportive. So he he was one of the first. Um, I do have to say the Robin Hood Foundation, because of Marion Fontana, the American Red Cross covered us for a number of years. 
and there were many others. And so if anybody's listening to this and they're saying, why isn't she mentioning us? I, I just can't. I can't get all of them. And I didn't prep for it and have a readout. But when you talk about personalities, uh, Gary was one of the first. He was also growing his own nonprofit at the same time, and which is doing very, very well. But Gary totally gets what we do. He doesn't ask the questions that are now, by now, obvious to us, that people will come in and they'll ask, well, what do you do here and how do you... He totally understands how we do it, why we do it, and why we need to continue doing it. Um, Steve Buscemi, also Marion Fontana, she lived near him in Park Slope. And I met him at a couple parties. And I almost tackled him because he was going for the last uh, chocolate cupcake, and I, I wanted it. <laughs> I don't care who he was, I wanted it. I think we ended up splitting it. Um, and I don't know if you'll remember that, but that was at Marion's. Um, his late wife, Joe Andrus, wanted, he wanted to get involved in some charity, but he didn't know what. And she heard about us. And she said, you were a firefighter. You still consider yourself a firefighter. When the shit hit the fan, he was down there. Oh, yeah. And she said, this is the, this is the charity you should get behind. And Steve never forgot where he came from. He did about seven years in Engine 55 over in Little Italy. Yeah. And uh, I remember seeing him probably the second day or the third day of 9-11 down in the pile wearing his old helmet. Yeah. Just like one of the brothers. and um, No photographs. There, he didn't want anybody yeah. to take a picture. No, no, nothing. Yeah. No fanfare at all. He yeah. didn't want any recognition. No. He just And he still doesn't. He just wanted to find the guys from 55, yes. right? anyone who was missing. And, um, and, he, and he, he never forgot. And that's beautiful. You know. What it is, I think it illustrates uh, that a firefighter, a true firefighter, is born that way. This is in, this is in your DNA. Nobody with a lick of sense will run into a building that's on fire unless it's something that you're drawn to. And that's why it's a job that I think when you hear my father was on, my grandfather was on, my great-grandfather was on, they come up in this culture and it's a natural segue into becoming a firefighter yourself. But it is definitely a calling. When we have breakfast here, and during the 20th anniversary, we've had it every week. And uh, this guy came in and he works a block away. And he said, you know, I don't come here for counseling or nothing. I said, I know. It's not. Actually, I don't know. I really don't know who's in counseling. But, you know, you're good, you're good to have around. I said, well, that's very nice. And I think he said this again to the therapist. Um, he goes, it's like you're an insurance. And she said, what do you mean? He said, well, I don't use you, but it's really good to know that you're there. That is priceless because when guys say... I don't know anything about Friends of Firefighters, but they're open to hearing about it. That's, that's great that they're open to it. But when they say they don't know and they don't care, to me, they haven't had that job yet. You know, if they, they, or they have and they don't, they, they don't want to go to counseling and they're afraid I'm going to see like with my x-ray eyes into their head that they really need it, which I can't do. It's such a comfort to know that guys, even if it's just the one, feel like, you know what, if it gets bad enough, I can go there and they're there. And if that isn't a responsibility that I have to make sure this place is here well past me, um, I just get a good feeling out of knowing that anything, little piece that I had to do with it helped somebody else. And, and that to me is like, it's the best. It's the best. So I, I don't, I just feel lucky to do it. And I know that sounds naive. It's, it's, I really feel lucky to do it. You know, yesterday was Memorial Day. It's when we did this interview, and not the Memorial Day that you're probably thinking about, but the FDMY's annual remembrance 
of its deceased members. And I go to Memorial Day with a lot in my mind. It's a lot of the, a lot of the guys I knew and loved and have passed on. Of course, a nod to, you know, my, my uh, great uncle. That, that I did not know, but his loss reverberated for generations. And his wife was, his widow was the, uh, she actually did come to the house. She was a matron and she did take care of the house. Um, doing something to help somebody else is far more rewarding than doing something for yourself. It just is. Yesterday at Memorial Day, so many people came over and they were so nice and, and they said such nice things. And I was embarrassed because I was thinking, do you know what I get from this? Like, it's like, you have no idea how fulfilling it is. I want, I want civilians to know that when they see first responders, um, they're not, it's not us and them. It's us and they have our backs. It's really important visual for people to keep in their minds because when shit hits the fan and they're the ones that go in there, we have to have their backs. Nancy, I like to say this to people. I'm proud to have walked amongst giants that willingly gave every one of their tomorrows so strangers could have their today. And uh, there's some people out there, you might not want to you know, be called an angel, but... You rescue the rescuers because you care. And, and that means, it means the world to my guys, my friends. So thank you. Thank you for just truly caring. Thank you for letting me in when they told you not to. <laughs> <laughs> Nancy, please know you'll always be welcomed in our world and you'll always be our angel. And to all of our listeners, please check out the important work of Friends of Firefighters and consider supporting it at friendsoffirefighters.org. And folks, if you've enjoyed these stories, be sure to check out our website at 2420podcast.com and consider signing up for our newsletter at the bottom of the page. You'll receive notifications about our latest episodes and great written summaries of them as well. We'll also notify you on future projects of Iron Light Labs. Lastly, I want to give a special shout out to all of those who have served our great country in one way or another. From the bottom of our hearts, we thank you and please stay safe out there. And now before we close, a special message from a dear friend of mine. Hi, this is actor Robert John Burke. I've been fortunate to be a part of projects like Tombstone, Law and Order Special Victims Unit, Gossip Girl, Rescue Me. But I've been even more fortunate to become friends with incredible first responders like your host, Nils Jorgensen. Folks who are willing to sacrifice every single one of their tomorrows so that we can have our today. As Nils so powerfully says, I lost a lot of my friends on 9-11, including my best friend. I felt like I had to pick up the flag for them. So I became a volunteer firefighter and I have been ever since. It's why I'm so grateful you're listening to the 20 for 20 podcast. I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review it, and share it with five friends because these stories are so important. Thanks for listening.